They do see that this is a potential new revenue flow for book from which there is no revenue. And then sort of from a public interest side, you will now have this, this digital access to this enormous corpus of material that, that right now is, is just uh, gathering dust. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. My co-host, J. Craig Williams, is in California, but he's running a little bit late today, coming back from a meeting, and he will be joining us shortly. I, of course, write the blog Law Sites and also a blog called Media Law, and Craig writes the blog May It Please the Court. Uh, we'd like to thank our sponsors this week, SunTrust, a company that offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Clio, the web-based practice management solution available at goclio.com. Well, today we're going to talk about a case uh, that goes back some six years and involves Google and the extremely important issue of copyright. In 2005, the Authors Guild filed a class action lawsuit against Google uh, concerned about infringement of authors' copyrights through the digitization of their books. $125 million settlement was ultimately reached in 2008, but was left with an outpouring of objections uh, from a number of the authors and uh, was lacking final court approval. Some 6,500 writers have since opted out of the Google Books settlement uh, in just this past month, in February, uh, U.S. District Judge Denny Chin uh, held a hearing on the Google Books settlement. Uh, he postponed the settlement due to the voluminous settlement of feedback. I mean, the voluminous amount of feedback on both sides of the settlement. Uh, competitors such as Microsoft and Amazon said the $125 million settlement is an attempt by Google to set it itself up as the all-powerful emperor of digital information. Those in favor of the settlement believe that uh, it would introduce a flow of digital information to the world. So the questions remain, uh, is the settlement fair to authors, publishers, Google's competitors, and ultimately the general public? Or would it unlock access to an overflow of digital information and infringe on authors' copyrights? We're going to hear more about the status of this case today with two guests uh, joining us first of all today is Professor James Grimmelman. Uh, professor Grimmelman is associate professor at New York Law School and is a member of its Institute for Information Law and Policy. He has a, a degree in computer science from Harvard and worked as a programmer for Microsoft. As a lawyer and technologist, he aims to help these two groups speak intelligibly to each other. He writes on such topics as intellectual property virtual worlds, search engines, electronic commerce, online privacy, and the use of software as a regulator. He has been blogging since 2000 at the Laboratorium at laboratorium.net. 
Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor James Grimmelman. Hey, great to be here. And joining us next today is Attorney Jonathan Band. Attorney uh, Band helps shape the laws governing intellectual property and the internet through a combination of legislative and appellate advocacy. He has represented clients with respect to the drafting of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, database protection legislation, the Uniform Computer Information Transactions Act, and other federal and state statutes relating to intellectual property and the internet. Uh, Mr. Band is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center and has written extensively on intellectual property and the internet, including the book Interfaces on Trial, as well as some 60 articles. Uh, more information on Jonathan can be found at policybandwidth.com. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jonathan Ben. Thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, let's start off by giving uh, our listeners who may not be familiar with all the nuances of this case some background uh, on on what the case is about and, and where it stands. Um, and I'm not sure if either of you want to step up to the plate on that. Uh, James Grimelman, let me ask you if you can give us some briefing on that. So this goes back, uh, as you said, about six years. In 2004, Google started partnering with a variety of major university libraries to make digital copies of their collections. And so initially, Google was just presenting this as we're going to scan books that are in the public domain that aren't under copyright and make them available you know, for free online. And of course, that's just you know, Google using some of its money to do something good for the world. But some of the copyright owners suspected that Google, in fact, planned to extend this to books in copyright. And they were right. Google then announced later on that they were, in fact, also going to scan books that were in copyright. And they obviously wouldn't display those whole books online, but they were going to integrate the books into their search engine so that you could go to Google and you'd get not back just web pages, but also books as results. Instead of pointing you to the web page, Google would tell you, here's a little bit around where your search term appeared in the book, and here are places where you can go buy a copy. Copyright owners though, thought this was an infringement of their copyright. It reduced their control over the book. Google would be making some money showing ads next to the search results, and they wanted control over this process. So the Authors Guild filed a class action lawsuit. A bunch of publishers sued also. And the case went off for a number of years just into the inevitable pretrial civil, uh, civil procedural stuff. And everybody thought, oh, it'll come back at some point and we'll have a big, you know, big lawsuit over the fair use question. But that wasn't actually quite what happened. All right. Let me just say that uh, Craig Williams has joined us now. Uh, as I said, he was running a little bit late, but he's with us. Craig, welcome. Thanks, Bob. How are you? We're, I'm well, and uh, we're talking to James Gribbleman and Jonathan Band about the Google case. Jonathan, uh, can, can you uh, bring us up to, up to date from there? Where are we now? Right. So, as James said, there had been this, uh, this litigation uh, that was filed back in 2005, and then uh, things went quiet as the parties were uh, discussing. Uh, uh, they, were, they were engaged in settlement negotiations, and they out came um, an announcement of a, of a settlement uh, in the uh, fall of 2008, uh, and the settlement took uh, took a lot of people by surprise because, as, as James indicated, the initial case involved the scanning and then the display of snippets, uh, just little bits of text. So Google would have a, a complete copy of a book, 
in its uh, search index, but all it would be displaying to a user would be just a, these, these snippets in response to a search query. The settlement, however, went far beyond the scope of the initial litigation. Under the settlement, uh, Google uh, would be allowed to display uh, full text uh, of of books, um, and there were different services. Uh, so one service was the, cons- the the consumer purchase, where they would be able to sell the full text of a book to uh, an individual. Uh, they also would be offering the an institutional subscription. So a university library, for example, would be able to uh, buy access, annual access to this entire database of books uh, and 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 authorized users within those within that institution would be able to access uh uh the full text of, of the book um and and uh, uh that uh settlement then became the subject of uh the 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 approval process under uh, rule 23 of the federal rules of civil procedure uh there were Lots of comments filed, uh, and then the, uh, the 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 Justice Department weighed in and raised serious concerns, both with respect to uh, Rule 23 uh, and 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 whether the settlement was permissible under Rule 23, as well as antitrust concerns. That prompted this is now the fall of 2009. That prompted the parties to renegotiate some provisions of the settlement and and in November they came out with an amended settlement agreement uh that was the subject of additional an additional round of comments and objections and then there was a fairness hearing uh on this past February February 18th uh and now it's before the judge who has to decide whether the settlement is fair reasonable and adequate uh, under uh, under Rule 23. Well, this is a question that both Bob and I are very interested in since we're both authors, but um, under the settlement, if it's approved by the judge, how do authors fare? Are, are, are we going to be continuing to getting our royalties for books that uh, people view or, or buy on Google? So what happens under the settlement is that Google will make money through the various so-called display uses, selling copies of books online, uh, selling subscription access, and showing ads next to previews of the book. And Google will keep 37% of that money, and it will pass 63% along to copyright holders. It'll do so through a big new institution called the Book Rights Registry, which is basically going to represent authors and publishers and pass the money along to them, keep track of their addresses, and so on. The exact split of your share of that 63% between you and the publishers, is itself the subject of some controversy. It's governed by something called the author-publisher procedures, which set out a fairly complicated set of formulas for how the money is split up, depending upon when the book was published and what your contract with the publisher said about the electronic rights. Now, uh, as with everything with the settlement, there's 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 added layers of complication. You have to understand the settlement uh uh, the document is about 200 pages long, and then there's lots of attachments. Um, the, the the settlement sort of divides the universe into books that are in print and out of print. 
And so, uh, and then it sets up default rules for the books in print and out of print. Now, the default rule for books in print is that the the, the various display services are not available, display uses are not available. So, if if uh, your book is in print, uh, in many respects, uh, what the so the settlements impact is is relatively limited. The book could stay in. Google search database, but they could only, uh, they can't even display, they can't display any text at all uh, unless uh, the, 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 the rights holder chooses that default, changes that default rule. And of course, the rights holder has the ability to opt out of the settlement or had the ability to opt out of the settlement, not no longer that that, that deadline has passed, but certainly it has the ability to, to tell Google, still at this point, to tell Google, I don't want you to make any uses of the book. Uh, and, and, it, and, and Google wouldn't uh, wouldn't be able to use the book. Now, the default rules for books that are out of print. So, let's say an older book it was printed, but then the publisher it wasn't selling enough copies anymore, or, or all the copies were sold out, and so it's, it's out of print. Uh, and, and and most books are out of print, of course. The default rules for books are, that are out of print is that that is really where the settlement is, is the real focus is sort of like these the books that are out of print. And and the default rules for the out of print books is that there would be these display uses available to Google and then you'd have the the revenue split that James described and so forth. Unless of course the rights holder steps forward and and asks for a change in the default rule. So the the, the, the again the author could the rights holder could uh, uh, opt out of the settlement. Again, that deadline is passed, but if, but still going forward, the, the, the right soldier could say, look, I don't want this book included in the services, uh, or I don't want you to meet me at all, or in the database at all, or I don't want you to, uh, to, to, to make any display uses. So, so uh, you, as the rights holder, first you have to say, is it in print or out of print? Uh, and then uh, what follows depends on whether the answer to that question, but assuming it's out of print, uh, uh, you would have these different options. Now, the, the bottom line, of course, is for a book that's out of print, uh, generally the rights holder, whether it's the publisher or the author, is receiving no money right now for it. It's out of print, right? It's not being sold. So the idea here is it would, in essence, bring, though it would, it would, it would uh, breathe new economic life into these books that are out of print. And so you would start making money again, conceivably, where you haven't been making money for a while. There's been an argument that some of the um, some of the authors have been making, some of the publishers have been making. This is essentially found money. That uh, this is a new outlet, and uh, you should be happy no matter what happens because you're going to be getting money in your pocket that you wouldn't otherwise get. Other people argue that um, you know they own the copyright; they should have control over the book, and th- this is actually something that's taking money away from them because it's taking uh, other outlets that would be otherwise available to them away. What's the general consensus on that issue? Well, there is no consensus, That's <laughs> which, why we're is why, here. which is why we're having this this conversation. Um, uh, no, but you're exactly right, that, and that's why ultimately the the publishers in the United States and and at least this group, the Authors Guild, support the settlement because they do see that this is a, a potential new revenue flow for 
book from which there is no revenue. And then sort of from a public interest side, you will now have this, this digital access to this enormous corpus of material that, that right now is, is just uh, gathering dust on the shelves of large research libraries. Um, the, the, the counter-argument is much less about money, even though there is some discussion of money and saying, well, there's, you know, some people are saying that it is depriving them of future economic benefits, but a lot of the money discussion is not that they're, uh, uh, that, they're, that this will divert money that they are now getting or likely would get in the near future. Uh, instead, it's that it's who is getting the money. Uh, that Google is getting a share of the money, as, as James indicated. Google gets 30%, 37% of the revenue. And so you have Google competitors that are upset about that and are upset about how this uh, gives them arguably an advantage in the search market generally or into the foothold into the public publishing market. Uh, or or the, the notion is that um, a lot of rights holders, and this is what's called the orphan works issue, a lot of rights holders will never step forward and claim their money. That, that we're talking, let's say, about 20 million books that are in this in-copyright, out-of-print category, that they're not, that, that, that a lot of them are dead, uh, their heirs don't know that there's a copyright interest here or, or, or don't even know that their heirs it's it's extremely yeah. complex, obviously. Right, right. And but the, it but the point like is, is that, that, that these that these that they're that 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 the the the, the conceivably revenue will be generated with respect to those books, but the money won't be going to them because they don't know they're either again either dead or they're no haven't stepped forward. But the money would be going to the authors who have stepped forward, the rights holders who have stepped forward to collect the money, and so that that somehow is unfair that 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 money that's being generated with respect to some works is going to other rights holders. James, uh, we're, unfortunately, we're, we're running short on time, but what, what, what do you think Judge Chin should do here? What, what's, what's the right route to take? I mean, to me, these, the specific questions about how fair the economic terms uh, and all of that, the settlement is arguably could go either way on a lot of that. As an academic, I think I'm primarily concerned with using class action system to set up this you know, fairly complicated system for how we distribute books. It's legislating through litigation, it sounds like. It's a substantial chunk of copyright law, and it creates this very complicated system. And really, institutionally, this is generally more the province of Congress. So you could say you know, under copyright policy, in terms of creating this kind of concentrated power, which is almost an antitrust concern, or just mm. in terms of the class action system, you know, this is really straining at the limits of what we want courts to be involved in doing. And, and my perspective is that, I guess my sort of my bottom line is that uh, James is 100% right that this is sort of a very funny way of uh, uh, resolving this kind of issue, That in, and certainly Congress should resolve it. However, I think uh, Congress is incapable of resolving this issue. It's too contentious, too many different parties, as we see in other areas. Congress is very, very, uh, is not capable of, in, of dealing with 
uh, contentious issues where there's little consensus. And here I just think the, the public interest in getting access to the books outweighs the uh, desirability of uh, congressional, of, of doing it in a, through Congress. And, and I see courts and the class action mechanism no less legitimate a way of resolving disputes than, than Congress. Well, regrettably, we're about out of time. Uh, I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to, to close with your, your kind of final wrap-up thoughts on this topic and also let our listeners know uh, how they can follow up with you if they'd like to do that. Uh, so, uh, James, let's start with you. So, uh, I've been spending a lot of time as sort of in my scholarly work following the settlement and trying to make it more accessible to the public. So, if listeners want to go to our site at thepublicindex.org, they will see a fairly comprehensive set of resources about the settlement. We have links to lots of news and blog commentary, a whole collection of papers about the settlement, including Jonathan's excellent uh, comprehensive overview of how we got to where we are, and also a uh, chance for them to comment on the settlement and a complete collection of court filings. We have even there an introduction of if you have five minutes, if you have an hour, if you have a day you want to spend on this, pointers to where you can start reading and find out more. Uh, yes, and I, I will basically uh, uh, just also point everyone to Jim's web, uh, uh, to James' website, uh, uh, because it is uh, an amazingly compre- comprehensive resource or other resources. Uh, one of my clients, the Library Copyright Alliance, has a website that has a lot of our filings, but, uh, but a lot of those things are on uh, James's site uh, anyway. Uh, so, so I would uh, I would agree that that uh, James is a good place for one stop shopping on this uh, very complicated and important issue. And Jonathan, how can our listeners reach you? Uh, I they can send me an email at jband at policybandwidth.com, uh, just the way it sounds. Or my my website is uh, www.policybandwidth.com. And if anyone wants to reach me, uh, James at Wimmelman.net. Just my first name and my last name. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for participating today. It was certainly an interesting discussion. We wish we had more time for it. Maybe we'll visit that again in the future. But at this point, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll be joined by Leanne Enquist, who's the Vice President of West Professional Development, with a very special announcement. Thanks to both of you for your time. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. 
Legal Talk Network and Thompson Reuters have teamed up for your CLE. You can now listen to Lawyer to Lawyer for credit. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on CLE Credit. It'll take you right to West Legal Ed Center to listen and get credit today. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to take this opportunity to make a very special announcement to our listeners. The Legal Talk Network is proud to announce that it is becoming a content partner with the West Legal Ed Center, which means that listeners can get CLE credit for your favorite Legal Talk Network programs, such as Lawyer to Lawyer, perhaps. Well, and Bob, we're now joined by Leanne Enquist. She is the Vice President of West Professional Development. In her role, Leanne leads the development and execution of Thomson Reuters' professional development strategy and tactics, encompassing West's Legal Ed Center, the federal publications, and Required, uh, which is a program that's used to track CLE uh, credits. Leanne has joined Thomson West in 1994. She's been with him for a while, and she's served in a variety of roles, including several within West Sales and Account Management Organization. Before joining Thomson West, she was an attorney in private practice, and we're proud to welcome her to Lawyer to Lawyer. Leanne? Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we're thrilled to launch the new partnership between West Legal Ed Center and the Legal Talk Network. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with the CLE opportunities, can you give us an overview of what West offers? Absolutely. Um, West Legal Ed Center is one of the businesses within Thomson Reuters. Uh, and folks may or may not know that the Thomson Reuters mission really is to make the legal system work better. And so worldwide, uh, our piece of that really, we believe, is to um, you know make attorneys better through education um, so that they can provide better counsel to their clients. And so West Legal Ed Center is uh, really the all-encompassing group. We do um, online legal education. We do live legal education. We have uh, 60 content partners um, that provide us uh, programming, uh, Legal Talk Network being one of those. Uh, We have about 10,000 different unique speakers uh, that we get from the top 250 law firms and Fortune 500 companies. So we're very pleased to be in partnership because we feel like um, where content um, quality and currentness is really what we're known for, that that's also um, what Legal Talk Network uh, is about as well um, with your key speakers and the current, the nature of the content that you provide. So we couldn't be more thrilled. And so what does this partnership mean for listeners uh, of this program and other programs here at the Legal Talk Network? How would they go about getting CLE credit for listening to this show? The beauty of it really is that all they have to do is listen. We we do the rest. So if they come to our site, which is uh, www.westlegaledcenter.com, um, they can browse our programs, which is on the left-hand kind of pane, and they'll go to our content partners where they can choose Legal Talk Network. We'll have all of the programs uh, available, I think, within 24 hours, actually. So when... Um, Folks tomorrow will have um, access to Legal Talk Network programs. And then from there, all they need to do is listen. We track the rest, and um, where appropriate, we uh, report to CLE agencies, and we get accreditation for the programs as appropriate. So really, their job is to listen. We do the rest. Can Craig and I get CLE credit for hosting the program? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I'd have to check into that. (laughs) Yeah, we'll find out about that one, Bob. But the the users, um, there are some fairly uh, user-centric options that West has available. Can you explain those to our listeners? Yep. One of... 
sort of, I guess, a key foundation for our business is that we always want to be delighting our customers. Our customers are key for us. And so where um, possible, we always try to provide uh, solutions that make sense for them, whether that be through different content methods. Uh, We first began as an online content provider, but we've subsequently um, expanded into um, mobile devices, into live programming. Um, We do some print publications right now. We try to have a an account management team that that serves some of our largest customers, answers questions, and and can help in that regard. Uh, so I think for us, it's really about um, quality. It's about customer service, and that we're listening and providing what people are after. So we try to do that through surveys and some other things as well. So we can get as close to our customers as possible and and provide what they need. What's your sense of how uh, of where uh, CLE is going? How how has the West Legal Ed Center been evolving in the time that you've been involved with it, and and where do you see it heading in the future? Um, that, that's a wonderful question. Um, when I first started in the business, which was probably wow about four four or five years ago now, um, really the the program that we programming that we had was very similar to I think what you would find with other folks, which is very much about. Um, the basics of the practice of law. Today, we're going to talk about how I draft a will or how, um, if my customer is involved in, in a DWI, what do I need to do? Very much um, A to B to C. And it was it was the basics. It was fa- fairly standard. Um, it, it was a lot about what people were doing. And I think that Many folks from many lawyers think of a continuing legal education as something that they have to do, not something that they always want to do. And over the course of the last couple of years, what we've tried to do, and I think the industry is moving towards this, is to recognize that... um, being educated in your topic is critical to not only gaining clients, but keeping clients and providing the best service possible. So, you know, as part of that sort of continuing mission for us, it's been about how can we be a catalyst for change in how we think about programming? How can we be cutting edge, deal with hot topics, things that people may not have any other way to get a hold of quickly. And so where our content has evolved, we really see ourselves now as a hot topic content provider, first and foremost, where we are providing really cutting-edge programming on things that are just happening uh, in the news. I'll give you an example. Um, we did a program on Haiti uh, and what that was going to mean from an immigration standpoint about a week after, um, or less actually, after the earthquake. And so we're really trying to be on top of really cutting edge issues for folks so they can, instead of being reactive, they can be proactive with their, with their clients. West has a, uh, a mobile application and a lot of our listeners listen to this podcast on their uh, mobile application. How does that work with West? Uh, for so we released our mobile application in December. Uh, from, from a customer standpoint, really, um, the mobile devices is a way in which they can receive the information. So they'll come on Wesley Gled Center. They'll choose programs um, for the last 12 months of programming. So we have about oh, over 6,000 programs online that cover the last um, 36 months. We really felt like folks who use mobile devices are really after really the most current information. So we converted um, our last 12 months of content and everything that we have going forward to be mobile compatible. So when they select a program, it will identify that it's mobile compatible. Um, When they download the application and um, open it, it then sends everything that they have um, purchased, I guess, for want of a better word, um, on West Legal Ed Center 
the website down to their mobile device. Then they just need to listen. Um, once it's done, we sync back up with our website and provide all appropriate certificates as um, you know as needed. And it, it's it's fairly simple. Is there a place for uh, social media in CLE? Uh, how are you integrating social media with with CLE? Absolutely. I think there are um, two ways in which social media is really important. One is just to get the word out from a marketing perspective. But secondarily, I think um, blogging and social media is becoming uh, a new way in which content is developed. Because as we um, look to communities, the community comments on how things are changing, what they're really developing the content as they go and as they comment. And so certainly for us, it has been um, key for how we're going forward. One of the things we do right now is um, in our accreditation area, folks have many, many questions around our programs accredited. How do we get them accredited? How can we help um, firms, for instance, understand better accreditation rules? So we have um, sort of our foremost accreditation expert um, produces a blog that, that um, folks can come to, get information, and then comment on. Same is true for um, Twitter. We we tweet fairly frequently about things that are upcoming, either programs or co- people commenting back and forth. So I absolutely think there is room, and and in the next um, couple of months, you will see us develop developing some communities for folks to come in um, and comment and and be a part of the discussion through different sort of a different format. Well, Leanne, we really appreciate your taking the time. We're honored that you were uh, able to come on our show and make this announcement, uh, and that we'll be partners, I guess, going forward. Uh, well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm delighted to be here and, and delighted to spread the news. Well, and Leanne, thank you very much. And we're really pleased to announce that our particular show, Lawyer to Lawyer, will be available on the on the West's website. And, and just for our listeners, Leanne, can you go over that one more time? Absolutely. So if you come to the website, that's www.westlegaledcenter.com. Left-hand pane, you're going to browse by content partner, choose Legal Talk Network, and you'll be able to find um, this program along with um, others from Legal Talk Network as well. Great. Well, thank you very much. And Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, for our listeners, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and now West as well. Well, good to uh, good to talk to you, and uh, thanks to all of our guests for being on the program today. I appreciate it. And uh, again, a reminder to our listeners that we are also in the uh, podcast library of iTunes, but you don't get CLE credit for listening to us there. So we suggest West Legal Ed Center. And we'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.